You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Happy New Year, retro movie lovers. We're rolling all the way down the aisles of the graves tonight. The 1980s movie Graveyard. We're back not only in the new year, but we're back for a very special day of the year. That's right, the spookiest day of the year. That is not Halloween. We're talking about Friday the 13th. Of course, you know me. I am the GOAT, and I'm joined once again by a part-time movie grave digger. Even though that part-time, it, it's creeping closer to full-time. We got Trevor in the house. Trev, what's going on, man? You, you have I just got to gotta keep putting in the hours till you finally give me some benefits you know <laughs> yeah we gotta get some benefits <laughs> gotta get that vacation time i mean oh, well i looked it up and we're not giving you health care anytime soon because i think we're still under like the five or six uh employee limit that 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 this yeah you know, well that's the problem Obamacare, with, uh, you know with trump coming in i'm gonna lose my health insurance so i need uh that's i need right. to crank up my hours here that's right it's you know it's uh it's january 13th uh, today, Obama's got exactly one week in office. You got one week of healthcare left <laughs> <laughs> until it gets replaced by something else. Yeah, so you better get all your sickness out of the way now, or your major operations in the next seven days, or uh, you know you might be shit out of luck depending on what uh, the new president wants to do. But yeah, we are rolling on this special day. How could we have not have done this movie before? How can we not start you know exploring the depths of this franchise before? You know, well, hell. Brand new year, the first Friday thirteenth of this year, you know, might as well do it. First Friday thirteenth of a new era of America in a way. So let's kick it off with exploring the amazing and original suspenseful Friday the thirteenth. Welcome to the nineteen eighties movie graveyard. The show that lets forgotten movies have one last chance to shine. Now sit back and relax. Enjoy the show. Yeah, man. I'm glad we're doing it because this is a movie that needs attention. Um, it really does. Hasn't been talked about in enough podcasts before. Mm-mm. Really kind of flies under the radar, I think, in general. So it's good that we're finally given this little gem, this little indie gem, the attention it deserves. Exactly. So I want to go ahead and get the thing rolling. For the sync instructions, if you got a disc, uh, either a DVD or a Blu-ray, Home Alone, I know it's Half the people have DVDs that are the R-rated version. Half the people probably have a Blu-ray or even a DVD maybe that's uncut. Don't worry. There's only 10 seconds difference between the uncut and R-rated. So you can sync up and you probably won't get too lost of where we're at. We got it. I got the Blu-ray right now kicking at the 7 second mark. It's the very first logo. There's a couple different variations that the Paramount logo does. First is a mountain. Then some stars come out. We have a pause where it says Paramount, a golf western company, and it's still the full color version. It's going to fade in a second here to a blue kind of version and go to the credits, but we have a pause where it says Paramount, golf western company, it's full color. I'm going to say one, two, three, go, and when you hear me say go, hit play on your DVD players, or if you're like me and Trev, (laughs) all spiffy in the year 2017, (laughs) we're going to hit hit start on our PS3 controllers. (laughs) That's right. All right, you ready, Trev? I am ready. All right, you got your 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 thumb and your, <laughs> do you have your yeah, thumb I'm, on the left? I'm good to go. It's like, I'm, it's like I'm ready to. <laughs> yeah, 
It's like I'm ready to play Friday the 13th. Let's go. Exactly. All right. One, two, three, go. All right. Here we go. The movie's rolling. And I know we pointed this out before, Trev, but I actually really have come to like this about watching these older movies. I like that opening credit little bounce you get. Yeah. (laughs) I kind of miss that, you know, because... Because, you know, these credits, these whatevers, these logos, at one time, you know, were put on film, and then they ran that film into a computer, you know? But uh, you don't you don't get that, uh, you know, that bounce to the opening credits in modern movies, because it's all done on a smooth computer. You and I, you and I sure seem to get into these weird little, like, uh, tangents on this. Not tangents, but these connections on episodes we do. Mm. Like, we did two Helen Slater episodes in a row. Exactly. And now... We just did House recently, and now we're coming back to another Sean S. Cunningham uh, film. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it in a little bit when there's a little bit of law, but I want to talk about Sean S. Cunningham. And I got to say, you know, I've liked a lot of the movies that he put, but I never quite realized how big of an effect he had on the genre, like how many big hits he's been involved with. Yeah, it's yeah. Like I said, we'll talk about him. Uh, I'm sure later. But it is he's he's an interesting guy in the horror genre because, like you just said, he's he's much bigger than you realize. But he also seems to be someone that kind of ran away from it for a long time, and then by the time decided he wanted to come back, had kind of fallen out of relevancy and never quite was able to get back to it. Yeah, and I, yeah, exactly. And it wasn't even really. I don't even think it was his fault. It was just more the business had changed. You know, mm-hmm. by the time he kind of tried to jump back into things, the business, you know. Other than maybe New Line at the time, which was about to die out itself, the business in general, the studios in general, they weren't trying to put out micro-budget films in, on a big release. You know, let's yeah. let's talk about the opening coda here because obviously this had been done before in movies before, but I still think at this point in time it was still somewhat original to start out with an opening <coughs> event from the past that would set up. The, the you know the modern day slashathon. This is of course uh, Camp uh, Crystal Lake in 1958, right mm-hmm. here. Doesn't look very 50s ish. Um, no, the only thing kids. that looks 50s ish is that one guy's face, <laughs> the tall guy that uh, was like sit up. He the, yeah, the guy with like kind of like the gray yeah t shirt on. He looks very 50 ish. But yeah, and then of course we have a couple counselors breaking off um, to you know go do the dirty. As we all know, you know, if if, if these two, uh, whatever, 19-year-old kids weren't super horny, the uh, Friday the 13th franchise, the whole saga, if you will, would have never happened, never, you know, interesting. Yeah, so you can, this kid, this guy's uh, desire to not have blue balls is like the beginning of a years of mass murder at this one camp. Yeah, and I, and I was doing a little bit of, you know, release date research today. And because uh, because I know isn't it prom night that starts out with like a childhood prank thing and I thought I thought well who ripped who off but and actually the burning as well starts off with like a childhood you know this isn't necessarily a prank but you know a past event that sets up to whatever and all three prom night and this and uh, the burning all came out the same year so nobody really ripped off anybody really. Kind of interesting. A real deep impact uh, Armageddon situation. <laughs> exactly. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I hate to throw this shit out there as true fact because, you know, you read this stuff in articles and who knows if it's been fact checked or not or whatever. But uh, supposedly, you know, while production was going on, 
uh, with Friday Thirteenth, and then the burning pretty much at the same time. Uh, somebody on, on the crew found out, and like they they panicked because they thought, well, we're we're both making the same exact movie, you know? Because I mean, supposedly they're both loosely based on I don't know, like the the northern New Jersey, whatever, Cropsey, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, the producers got in touch with each other, kind of compared notes on their scripts, and they thought, oh, this is completely different. Which is funny when you think about it. In a way, it is. But in a weird way, I think the burning kind of set up more what the Friday the 13th sequels were going to be like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that's one thing that uh, Friday, the 13th, Friday the 13th, this one we're watching, has become a very interesting film. Not only because it kicks off this franchise, but also because it seems like such an anomaly in the franchise when you watch it. Yeah. It, it just it just feels very different from what followed. Um, and some people really like that. Some people are a little cooler on it. Uh, I kind of fall in the middle of that. But it's it's just kind of cool to see the beginnings. Uh, whereas, like you said, the burning definitely feels more like, you know, like when we get into three and four of this series. Actually, I love the burning, by the way. I don't know oh, where I- you fall. Oh, I'm 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 a huge fan, huge fan, and uh, I I kind of you know had always heard about it as a thing of legend, you know I never knew about the movies for quite frankly the movie in the '80s, but in the '90s with the internet I started hearing a lot about it, and uh, you know finally that D- that official DVD release came out, I rented it, you know loved it, rented it several times, waited for the Blu-ray as soon as the Blu-ray came out, got it. You know, but it wasn't a movie I grew up with or anything like that because it was so out of print. I think it was only on VHS in the early 80s. Now, you being a Friday 13th aficionado, Trev, I got to mm-hmm. ask you this because this was, you know, and of course, maybe it was retconning, maybe it was whatever, but not really because it's really the story of this. You know, you're so excited. You got your Jason mask on and everything to do this uh, this, this episode. <laughs> yeah, sorry if I sound muffled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, but I'm just wearing. I'm just. But I'm only wearing the part two sack over my head. Exactly. <laughs> You're not going with the full resin documents. But okay, they always say that you know, uh, you know. I guess no spoilers here because if you're listening to a commentary type thing, you know, you know the fran. I mean, everybody knows the franchise. But obviously, you know, Jason's mom wanted revenge because uh, you know the the counselors were screwing while he drowned. And like here, the the two kids, uh, you know, got stabbed while they're going up in the attic or whatever to screw. But uh, okay, this is where I'm a little confused. Maybe you can clean this up for me. It wasn't like Jason just drowned right then, right? Because wasn't no, it no, no, no. He would have he would have drowned before that because that's her getting like the first revenge for it, right? And like, but it, you know, I don't think he'd be out night swimming. I don't. No, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying, but. But the fact that like was she waiting until like was it was it like the same two that were screwing the first time? Like yeah, I don't know about that, but I mean, I, I the way I've always taken it is that that murder closed the camp for like you know years, until right. now we're here, we're on the eve of it finally reopening. Right, and like I mean that that's how I took it too. But um, well, here's the problem with the, that question, and probably dozens of other ones you're going to raise during this, um, yeah. and we'll probably talk about this a little bit is uh continuity is uh it doesn't matter loose. in the series yeah. yeah it's it's very loose and even uh, at the end of the film i'll point out some major headaches i have with the final scene uh, which is of course a classic scene but also creates a lot of like unanswerable questions but i mean they just didn't they didn't care you know and i'm not saying that as an insult it's just more it this really was a fly by the seat of your pants kind of production I mean, this was written and they, you know, they wrote it in about two weeks, filmed it in a month. They were really racing to hit uh, the release date that Cunningham had set up. You know the story, I'm sure, that he had just put a trade of an ad out in Variety saying Friday the 13th, the most terrifying picture ever made. 
And all he had really was a name. At that point, they didn't even know what the movie was. And he got it financed and then was like, oh, now what is this? So this was kind of thrown together pretty quickly. Yeah, I was I was reading a little information today saying that he uh, he just had the title in his mind and he actually paid mm-hmm. an advertising company to make that cool, like, kind of 3D-looking, kind of chrome breaking through the glass type logo. And that poster is kind of what got him all the, you know. Yeah. Well, here, here's another bit of trivia. This little town here. Um, is that the guy that's always in the Rob Zombie movies? Erwin Keys? I don't know. I'm like, I just was looking at that and be like, is that him? But I'm not sure it is. It looks like him, but it's hard to tell because this, this guy has hair, and I've only ever seen yeah. Erwin Keys with a bald head. Looks a lot like him, but it's hard to tell. Yeah, it could be. Also, another thing that I read. And I was trying. I was looking for it here, and I could never see it. They claim that you can see, you know, the part where they're in town here. And I thought they meant the beginning of the movie, not another part of the movie. But I thought they said that like, you can see the overhang of a local movie theater. But I could never see like the overhang of the marquee or whatever. But uh, you know, this this town, uh, the local theater, never actually showed Friday Thirteenth until two thousand seven, when it was kind of like an intentional fan. You know, screening or whatever, but I thought that was interesting that yeah. you know, the town <laughs> never really got into capitalizing on it. You know what I mean? I think one thing that's cool about this movie is whatever you feel about the movie, uh, how you know good it is, or whether you like it as much as the sequels. It's always fun to watch a film that sets up so many tropes that got carried later. Mm-hmm. It's like when you watch Dirty Harry now and you see all the stuff that you know, dozens of films ripped off later. And here we just had our first appearance of Crazy Ralph, who, of yeah. course, sets up this great archetype of the old man who warns kids not to go somewhere. The doomsayer, yeah. Yeah. I actually, I actually think, like, you know, there are things that are well done in this film, and I I think this is a nice misdirect, too, um, you know, probably influenced by Psycho, obviously, but I think they do a good job here making you feel like this Annie girl is going to be our main character, and, oh, and you're kind of on board with her. Yeah. She seems – she's very likable, bubbly. Uh, you know, She doesn't have much screen time, but you do kind of fall for her in, in a sense. Oh, no. She's great. She's, she's beautiful too in a, in a way, in a style. Yeah, that, that, real, that realistic 80s way. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, kind of rewatching this again, you know, it's kind of interesting um, how good looking the girls are in the movie. And how mm-hmm. not really like hunky or good looking the guys in the movie are. Yeah. But also like it's like it's true of a lot of low budget horror films this time, and one of the things I know we both like about them is everybody looks real too. Right, right. As the series would go on, it started to be the camp was populated by, you know, models. That's especially true when you watch the remake, which I like, but this yeah. just like it feels so real. Yeah. I mean, it's even to the point, I mean, really, where like a lot of the girls don't even look like they're wearing really makeup at all. You know, if they are, it's very minimal. It's not, you know. And, like, when I was reading, um, uh, you know, there was a lot of people that were cast in the movie, uh, you know, the counselors or whatever, the younger people that had um, a soap opera experience. And their thing was, you know, the main, like, criteria was they actually, like, number one, they wanted people who could be believable and, like, this actual setting of being camp counselors and whatever and like kind of the acting and the looks were secondary you know i mean they they said they just wanted somebody who could act decent and wouldn't charge a lot of money (coughs) or whatever yeah but i uh, bet you their main concern was they wanted people who were cheap oh yeah (laughs) exactly because i i I mean and i kind of find this hard to believe but the thing i was reading was i believe quoting that this was a five hundred thousand dollar budget but i i you know, I mean, I don't know. It did, you know, I mean, film, you know, is more expensive to shoot or whatever. But I, 
I, I was really shocked that this was even well half that budget. In all honesty, I mean, keep in mind though they had to actually rent that camp for a month, that is and true. to stay at that camp, they actually had to give the Boy Scouts of America a, a big donation. I don't know if you knew about that. No, but I didn't. that was a Boy Scouts camp, and they were only allowed to go there after they gave them like a you know a, a pretty good chunk of change. So they I don't know how much of the budget went to that, but yeah. No, yeah, I mean, the, totally, and, and you know, like. I don't mean this as a slam or anything, because I think this film, you know, at the time period it was, it was, it, it, it was, you know, the originality, like you said, is not there. I think this is a total, you know, psycho, psych out type mm-hmm. thing, but uh, I think it just was more of not trying to straight up rip off, as it was just paying homage. Because, you know, at, the, at that time period, a lot of the horror was very new, you know, there's a lot of new genres or whatever, and I felt like... You know, the slasher thing had been, definitely been happening. Halloween already came out at this point, and there's a few movies in between. But I feel like this one was the one, and especially with the successes had, because Paramount had a great strategy where they actually pushed this like it was an A-list picture, even though it wasn't in terms of a wide release. It's, it, for everything I've always read said that this was one of the first low-budget movies given a wide release, like over a 1,000 theaters at one mm-hmm. time. But uh, I think I think the success of this movie... Because I think he did like forty nine million domestically, and then did like fifty million overseas, which at that time it was rare for an independent film to even play overseas at all. But I think this is like the movie that really got the uh, you know there's slasher movies in between this and Halloween, but I think this was the one that like really got stuff kind of you know out there in the mainstream theatrically. Oh, of course, know? and I mean it's funny when you talk about Paramount too. Paramount always had a very odd relationship with this franchise. Oh, um, yeah. And that was, you know, these are basically independent films that Paramount would then distribute. But, uh, I don't, you know, you know the history. Like, it, it was that kind of thing where Paramount was kind of embarrassed to have this franchise, but at the same time still wanted to do them because they made so much money off of it. But it was really like the little, you know, redheaded stepchild that nobody talked about and, you know, they didn't want to acknowledge too much. But, of course, it was one of their biggest, you know, you know, money makers throughout the 80s. Well, yeah, like, I would always hear that... Um you know, it was the redheaded stepchild, uh, you know, through the years, through reading Fangoria and whatnot. And I always thought it was just Paramount being snooty because they are a classic studio. They are, you know, and like, they, you know, they, they needed a hit kind of around this time and whatnot. Um, but I kind of understand why they took, took you know, they kind of kept this franchise at arm's length. And it was kind of like the redheaded stepchild was the critical backlash on this was amazing. Siskel and Ebert did like a whole TV show oh, yeah. where they just bitched about this movie, you know what I mean? Like completely. They spoiled the they spoiled the ending. They put up the names of all the cast and crew for people to you know like you write letters to and complain to. Yeah, they they, uh, they threw out Betsy Palmer's not her like street address, but the town she lived in and I think mm-hmm. they threw out like the direct address of maybe like the Paramount like president yeah. or chairman or something. <clears throat> Like, well, and you know, and I don't think this was Paramount's thinking, but also it, having that kind of attitude about Friday the 13th helped the series, though, because if you're like a hardcore horror fan, you don't want the series to be like the prestige series that's no. coming out from Paramount. It was it was cooler to feel like it's this little rebellious Forbidden series. Fruit, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and also, and you know, I hate this organization or whatever, the Golden Raspberries, but this film, in I think the the worst film, whatever category, and one other category, this was actually nominated for for Raspberries, Golden Raspberries. So the Razzie Awards, like people think it's like such a a, a badge of like shame, you know. Now it's usually like big 
blockbuster type movies or either big movies that fail or whatever. But I mean, even they went after this, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Which is funny. Cause like, let's, I mean, this isn't like a great film by any means, no, no, it's, but it's man, very... com- compare this to all these other slashers that came afterwards. You're like, this is not worth that kind of ire. You know? No. And, and just, you know, kind and of... even like, like the first two murders we just saw a little bit ago are, are really tame. You know, there's not, it's it, things would, would escalate so much after this. Oh, big time. And it's just like, like I don't know, like like I, I feel like, and obviously this uncut version has a tiny bit more gore, but this really wasn't a gore fest. Like, yeah. Um, as you know, Trev, I'm, I'm sure reading all the things, uh, there's been a lot made out of about how much they ripped off some Mario Bava films. You know, right? I, th- I, well, think, that, I yeah. think that was more. Wouldn't you think that was more Savini's touch with the effects, things he was? Uh, well, it's it's interesting because you brought up Halloween. Well, before I, I just quickly want to say, like, I'm cosplaying as Jason right now, but aren't you dressed as uh, Steve Christie right now? Oh yeah, you got the <laughs> no shirt, but you got the, <laughs> the bandana on your neck and the short shorts, but, but, the but, short shorts on. But that's that's usually my home attire. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you mentioned Halloween earlier and, and, you know, Sean S. Cunningham has been very open about the fact that he, this was just, let's re, let's rip off Halloween. Right. Like he saw that's where the money was at this point. His only horror experience was he had produced last house on the left. Right. And he was very open about, you know, he was very happy with that film because it made him a lot of money, but he did say that he didn't find it a pleasant film to watch. Uh, and he wanted to make a, a horror film that was more fun. And then he saw Halloween and he's like, well, let's just rip that off. And then, like, so it, it's very clearly a Halloween ripoff. We just, but we, now we just talked about the psycho element. You just brought up Mario Baba. Kind of every other element in here that seems like it was taken from somewhere else, Cunningham and uh, Victor Miller, the co writer, have always, like, denied. You know, they've always said, like, oh, we didn't see any of those movies. We had nothing, we knew nothing about it. I don't know how much I believe that, but yeah. I mean, I think you're right that the, the, the violence influence definitely came from Savini. Yeah. And Savini was brought on uh, specifically because Cunningham had been blown away by his work on Dawn of the Dead. And was like, well, we need to get that guy. Because, because it, I mean, you know, it's always with a gory film, there are always a lot of people, even a lot of horror fans, that say, like, we don't need to go too far with the gore or whatever. And obviously, the, even in the uncut version, this movie is pretty tame compared to today's standards. But, like, if any movie earns the gore, so to speak, I think it's this movie because... You know, if you look at a lot of, like, the horror movies in general, or even slasher movies that are really gore-heavy, you watch the movie, and you watch the pacing, and you watch the editing, it's really not about those gory ones. A lot of times, they're not trying to set the mood or whatever, and, like, this film really earns the gore, I feel like, with the, the setup, you know, suspense, you know, like, they really go out of their way, and, like, even the score, of course, the the famous uh, Manfredini music, you know, he even went as much to say, like, there's a lot of points in the movie where I could have laid in more music. And, you know, like, a perfect example is even, like, this this, this era one. Like, they didn't build it up with, like, a lot of, like, you know, suspenseful music, like, whatever. Like, there were certain times where they used the music and sometimes where they intentionally didn't. So it was, like, you know, they were going for both, like, the atmosphere and the slow buildup. And they, they, weren't, they weren't just going for, like, the, the compressed, like, scenes where it's like, well, let's hurry up and get to the gore. Like, they really, you know. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's always been kind of interesting to me that the critics came out so against this and, and went after this and other slasher films at the, of this time with, like, such a passion. Because as you just point out, it's not even like this level of on-screen gore was new. Right. Like, that's, that's a common misconception that we need to blow out of the water right now because – we were just coming out of, at this point. We were coming out of the seventies, which I mean, if anyone's seen Italian horror films of the seventies and Giallo's, 
they were way gorier than this. Oh, and like yeah. you just said, like a lot of the influence of the violence in this probably comes from that. And I mean, it's not like those films weren't being seen in America. Films like Suspiria and, and you know, uh, Bay of Blood, stuff like that, were certainly getting play in, you know, New York and L.A. And so I, I, it, there was just something about like, I don't know if it's just something about how cheap maybe the slashers felt. I think that's kind of where the critics got a little uppity, where they're like, oh, violence is fine if it's a classy film, but these aren't classy, you know? I, and I always thought that was – I think that's always been – you know, it sticks in my craw, obviously. And I'm sure it does for you too. No, yeah, and I, I think it's really blown out of the water too because I feel like unfortunately, you know, with the passage of time and whatnot, people only compare like the subgenre to the subgenre. So it's like Halloween, even though it was a somewhat violent movie, it wasn't a very on-screen gory movie. So like in a lot of people's mind, there was Halloween and then a couple years later there was Friday the 13th or whatever. So they equate that like, well – Friday Thirteenth was more gorier than Halloween, meaning Halloween, meaning Friday Thirteenth was like a huge leap forward in gore and violence. And it's really not when you look at the overall horror picture, and you see like some of the shit that Cronenberg was doing in Canada, or if you mm-hmm. even look at like George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, like you know, <laughs> like 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 the gore in Friday Thirteenth is way tamer <coughs> compared yeah. to your Dawn of the Dead. Just people only compare slasher to slasher, and that's kind of like a narrow minded. View, I think. Yeah, because I mean, I, I know you could say, oh, well, these movies are more cynical. I mean, that's part of it. But again, the Giallo films were so much more cynical and misogynistic even than this. So it's it wasn't it's it, this was not breaking any new ground that way. And, and like I said, like even though this was a very basic, probably when they filmed it, they're pro- in all honesty, they're probably mean it for it to only play drive-ins or whatever. Like they do a good job with like you know, it's not that cynical in terms of like they don't make you hate all the characters the way a lot of the later films in the genre I feel like would do like here with Annie you know uh she was extremely likable in her few you know the first few minutes where they kind of set her up and what's going on and then you know we, we get this first person kind of thing where she's riding in this jeep she's hitchhiking to the last little bit to get to the camp you know she 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 realizes like this person who we don't see we don't know who it is you know like, this person's not taking her where she wants to go. Like, I give her credit for just setting up little suspense scenes like that. She has to jump out of the, the Jeep, like, while it's going, like, full speed down the road. That was a great little stunt. And now she's going to get her, you know, her her death here and whatnot. But, like, this is not someone we were rooting for to get killed in this movie, I don't think, at no. all. So, you know, it, it's just, like, I get the kind of cynicism, you know, critique or whatever. But, like, you know, especially in this first movie... Like, I feel like we're supposed to have sympathy and feeling and emotion for the people who get killed, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you know, like, there was great little bit of handheld camera work in, in the, the woods there. And even uh, even the dissolve to white, I thought, was a great artistic decision. I mean, like, you, you watch this movie and it, it looks very reminiscent of um, low-budget movies from that time. But it's not shot shitty. It's not edited shitty and... I mean, the acting is pretty good for what it is. You know what I mean? I do just want to contradict one thing you just said. Uh, this guy that's just doing somersaults and jumping around on the raft, <laughs> I kind of want him to die. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, what I should have said was 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 the girls. Like, yeah. I, th- I think the, 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 you know, and it kind of was like this, you know, I'm trying to think, when did the first quote-unquote, you know, bitch of the series show up where like a mean girl or whatever showed up? I'm trying to think. I don't even think part three had a mean girl. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they definitely had like the the slut archetype, right? right. Like the sex pot that that comes into play fairly quickly. But yeah, the bitchy girl. I'm not sure where that. 
yeah, comes in. I think <coughs> maybe around part six, maybe one of those girls. I know there's definitely like a mean girl in part seven mm-hmm. who's always making fun of uh, Lark, Lark Voorhees or whatever her character's name was. But um, <laughs> no, Lark Voorhees is the girl from yeah. Saved by the Bell. Oh no, I'm sorry. Larp, Larp, Larp Park Lincoln. <laughs> Larp Park Lincoln. Yeah. yeah, she. I know she keeps getting made fun of by some like mean girl in that one. Yeah, that was a weird shot. Also, also too, another weird like coincidence similarity. And we we talked about this me and Corey when we did the burning. And uh, I guess this isn't a, a good example of this because everybody's like naked right now. But there's like a guy who's like always wearing like a football shirt, and same with Jason Alexander in the burning. And like I find the yeah. whole football shirt uh, phenomenon really weird because what we're talking about is not a football jersey. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Travis? Like it's not actually oh, like, yeah, a no, team no. jersey. Uh, it's a it's, football. It's def- it's a definite, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it, even to the point where when they did What Hot American Summer, they made sure one of their characters was in one of those football shirts. Yeah. Because it's, it's it's just something you see in every 80s camp movie, whether it's a slasher or not. Yeah, I actually own one. It's it's actually, like, a Disney Mickey Mouse one. But I was like, I was like a football shirt? Like, holy shit, I haven't seen one of these in, like, 30 years. So I, I ordered it when I saw it online. But, yeah, football shirts <coughs> are a big deal. And, like, I don't know where they came from, but they were so prevalent, you know, back in these films. Just waiting for that, like a uh, sludge from the raft and creep show two to come up and yeah, suck everybody take up. Those kids. The uh, there's a crossover we need: Jason versus the goo from the raft. The goo from the raft. Which, which, by the way, this is uh, I don't have any affiliation with them, but uh, if anybody wants to look up maybe four or five episodes ago on the the podcast Profondo Cinema. Um, they actually interviewed for about an hour the the guy who was like the main actor in that segment with the raft. Oh, I think it's they interviewed the goo. <laughs> no, that, that'd be, I, I think interviewing the goo is more our territory. That's more something <laughs> we would do. And I'm blanking on the actor's name, and I forget that. But but if you look it up, it was the last interview they did about four or five episodes ago. So I enjoyed that a lot. I like hearing about the guys. You know, he pretty much broke down his whole history as an actor and what it was like in the '80s, breaking in and stuff. It was, it was very cool. Now here we have the first appearance of a machete in a Friday Thirteenth movie, and it's it's to dispatch this large black snake that's in the uh, the girl's cabin or whatever. And uh, I have to say, you know, I always thought it was kind of cheesy because you know I like killers who just kind of grab anything near and get more creative. But you know, I always thought it was kind of a cheat that Jason in the later films will use the machete as much as he did. But I gotta, yeah. I gotta give him at least credit. Like they, you know, not that they were obviously thinking this, but the machete was a part of the franchise ever since the very beginning. You know, and plays a big part in the end as well. You feel bad for the snake though. This is like cannibal Holocaust territory here. Kind of, you know. What, what do you think on it? Is this movie magic, or do you think they killed this snake? Oh, they killed the snake. I uh, they oh. they talk about it. And oh, they- I have that big hardcover Crystal Lake Memories, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know like the oral history of the franchise, and mm-hmm. and they're they're very open about how they they killed the snake because you know there's no PETA on set for a movie like this, you know. Yeah, that really sucks because uh, e- even though I have seen snakes get killed in real life, and obviously you want them to get killed because they're very scary once they get up around your house and whatnot. Um, it's like the one animal where a rubber version, if you shot it right, looks pretty much the same as a real version. <laughs> yeah. Like if you take a rubber version and just kind of wet it down or put Vaseline on it and make it shiny, it looks about the same as a snake. So, you know, I'm surprised that they could have done a quicker cut. And, but you're right, looking at it again, there's no way that was a fake snake. And obviously mm-hmm. they confirmed it, but yeah, kind of, kind of sucks. I don't know. 
I'd be more upset if they, like, they chopped the head off a cat or something, to be honest. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Or one of the actors. That might be rough. Yeah. <laughs> that would... Uh, here we have some really racially insensitive <laughs> uh, Native American tribute here. And uh, I like how the guy is... This is the gentleman who wears the football shirt. And he's actually wearing a football shirt while he wears a, a Indian headdress. He's wearing a football shirt like almost like as a diaper, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very bizarre. No, here's a good time. Let's talk about the involvement of Kevin Bacon in this film. Probably the most famous actor. And he was—he actually probably was the most famous actor at the time, wouldn't you think? Because he was in Animal House before this. Uh, I mean, I think Betsy Palmer was kind of known to people. But yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wonder. That's a good question, actually. Do you think people are more excited to see the guy from Animal House or Betsy Palmer? Yeah. <laughs> Because, I mean, all these actors this age, they would have had the scene I am all house. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Kevin Bacon is still the most famous person or most famous actor in this entire franchise. Oh, for sure. And that's no kind of no. You know, that's another thing. You know, like a lot of people don't like part one because it don't have Jason in it. But, I mean, you got the bacon. What else do you want? Yeah, man. Oh, uh, which speaking of football shirts, uh, Bacon has the uh, fake baseball shirt, <laughs> mm-hmm. another eighty staple. Which, which unfortunately, the baseball shirt stuck around for a long time. It really never completely went away. You could always buy them, <coughs> uh, but uh, I prefer the football shirt myself. I would wear a football shirt over a baseball shirt any day. I mean, I have an Army of Darkness baseball shirt that I like quite a bit. Nice. Do you when you wear it? Do you normally roll the sleeves up though? Uh, I mean, I push him past the elbow, if that's what you mean. Like, yeah. Like, like I just never liked the baseball shirt because they have that fake sleeve that, like, only comes down to barely past your elbow. Mm-hmm. If they were full-sleeved, I would probably be into them more. I'm sure this cop knows how to ride a motorcycle. Yeah, this, this is always very weird. You know, I guess it kind of comes into play with the climax of the film, with the police being kind of inept. But the police in general are, wouldn't you say, portrayed as very inept in this film, very, you know... Well, from what I, if if my memory serves me correctly, is that the this whole scene with the cop was something that they were forced to add in by the the money people, like the really? the money people who put up the you know the budget for this um, were a team of producers from Boston who Cunningham had worked with before, but didn't really get along with. Um, but it was just kind of like you know he had to work with them, and they kind of brought in another writer um, to you know make some changes to Victor Miller's script. And one of those changes was the scene with the police officer because they just thought it would add in some additional humor and you know some more context. And and Victor Miller's always said he hates that scene because he wanted the whole idea to be that there's nobody around to help these kids. You want you want them to feel completely isolated. But as you said, it doesn't really matter because it's not like they ever really come into play anyway. Yeah, and I mean, and this is you know the days when um, you know. The, all the killer had to, and this is very common in films or whatever. But this is the days when all you had to do was a quick shot of seeing that the color, the killer had uh, cut the phone lines, and it wouldn't even matter if there was cops or not, you know, because you can't call yeah. them or whatnot. But that why was why Ralph just hanging out in a closet or a pantry? Yeah, like I, I always, I always find that interesting because, um, you know, he, I always assume he's a homeless gentleman or living in a shack gentleman. But uh, yeah, the the girl uh, Adrian King she opens up the pantry and he and he starts saying, "I'm a messenger of God. You're all doomed if you stay here." I always thought it more that he just snuck into the camp to get some food and he was probably in there eating whatever he could eat. And then when like they busted him by opening up, then he kind of put the spiel on. Then like I don't think he was waiting in that closet, you know, just to give the spiel. I think he was getting a meal in there. 
it's a little role and you know not much to it but there is like there's just something about kevin bacon where this early on it's true of animal house too right you can just kind of he definitely has like a movie star quality that just kind of already is like kind of seeping off the screen a little bit you know like yeah. he just he, seems, he feels so much more natural and likable than the other guys in this. He does. The, the I really guy, want him to be the one who sticks around. You know? The other guys in the movie, in all honesty, they're, like they're not worth complaining about, especially in a film this low budget. But I think the girls in general, you know, not not including Bacon, like you said, but I think the girls in general are kind of better actors in this movie than the guys are. But that also could be too just the girls may be feeling more vulnerable in this, you know, the setting and filming or whatever. And I can see the guys just screwing around all day. But yeah, Bacon, and this is, this is like the kind of first appearance of the Bacon we know, uh, you know, appearance-wise. Because if you watch Ammo House, like, he still had his baby fat. Like, he, he, you know, he, and he was supposed to be a dorky guy in that movie, but, you know, his appearance between that and this, where I think the, I think maybe the timeline was maybe five or six years later, like, I remember him saying, like, somewhere I read that he, he said after he did Animal House, he, you know, and he was in a big hit movie. And granted, it was a very minor role, but he thought, like, all this work would come his way, you know, and, like, it really didn't. Like, he was still starving just as much all those years, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, he was, he's also open about how this, I mean, this kind of film, Friday the 13th, isn't really the sort of material he enjoys right. or really has any connection to. But he said, you know, it was a job. He was excited to get a job. And then. Once he was there, he said it was, you know, obviously, as you would expect, he said it was a blast because, I mean, they were really just staying at a camp for a month. And, and I've I always had this like kind of romantic notion of that or of making a film set in a camp, but actually getting to live on the camp. Right. Just something I don't think, you know, now nowadays when they make a movie like about a camp, they're obviously not really doing that. But I know that like they did it for this and they did it for, you know, the first Wet Hot American Summer. And I, I love that idea of a, a whole cast and crew just actually living that life for a month and you and because the people obviously then become real friends and that pays off on screen like that's why they feel real i mean exactly and just for logistics you know usually the biggest part you know not the biggest part but usually a lot you know because obviously a marvel movie they got to spend money to blow shit up but in Mm -hmm. general for most movies most i guess mid-range smaller movies one of the biggest expenses is just housing the cast and crew if you mm-hmm. rent a camp out legit everybody's got a place to sleep right there yeah you don't really and how much fun do you think that would be to be making this movie and like film all your scenes and then at night you all go oh, back yeah. to a cabin and just hang out smoke you know drink have yeah. fun like, exactly and here we get mr football shirt which by the way uh i am terrible with the character names in, in this film. Well, I'm terrible with character names for this entire franchise. I mean, this is my favorite uh, horror franchise, and I can name maybe uh, you know, four of the characters other than Jason. Yeah. Because because you just, instead you start seeing them as, like, the archetypes they are, you know? Right. So it's like, oh, there's the nerd, there's the, the you know, sex pot girl, there's the final girl, but names? Bah, forget it. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yeah, Mr. Football Shirt there, um, you know, he saw somebody in a cabin, and obviously, you know, he doesn't know anything wrong is going on at this point. You know, at this point, I guess on the modern day, the only person that really has been killed is Annie. You know, we saw the flashback killing, but that was in the 50s. Um, so, you know, he just thinks somebody's milling around the cabin, and, you know, we see him, you know, walking in the cabin. Obviously, he's going to get killed in there, but uh, then they just cut back to Bacon and his girlfriend. Like I found that interesting that they, you know, they don't really pay that off right away. You know what I mean? There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of off-screen stuff in this film. Yeah, a number sure. of the murders are off-screen. So, 
Um, and I don't know if that was that maybe that was just budgetary, you know, and we can talk Could about be. whether it works to the film's advantage or not. But it does. It's the one nice thing is later when we discover bodies of people that we didn't know were murdered. That's the one kind of benefit of that. Obviously, as we got later into the series, they would never think about off screen deaths. You know? No, because because I mean, in a way, because I mean, even here, this is like a little dialogue scene where, um, you know, Bacon's girlfriend is, is talking about this like nightmare she has of rain. I love the like the lightning strikes, which are clearly just someone like flashing a flashlight. I, 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 <laughs> like, like, I think they could have even gotten away with just like putting on a thunderous sound yeah. effect. The flash effect. Yeah, it was really, you know, but uh like, like I, don't, I don't know, like, like put yourself, I know it's hard to do, because, you know, like, I know I definitely didn't see this movie in the theaters, and I know you didn't either, because you're a couple years <laughs> younger than me, but put yourself in the mindset of, like, you're going to the theater, whatever, you're paying to see this, whatever, first time, you know, maybe you've seen some slasher movies, maybe you haven't, but... Do I have, wait, what, what did I, did I get snacks? <laughs> um, I want you to set, you gotta set the scene here. okay. I'm really going to go retro with it. You got popcorn. Uh-huh. You got uh, a medium uh, RC cola. Oh, okay. And you got Juji fruits. Remember when Juji <laughs> fruits were actually at movie theaters and not yeah. just at Walgreens? Yeah. <laughs> so that also means I'm spending the rest of the film picking at my teeth and trying to get those oh, Juji fruits off. Exactly. And the best part about Juji fruits, and uh, this is, uh, I think, was the comedian Rich Little, maybe Rich Hall, maybe Rich Hall. So Juji Fruits, you hold them up to the screen in the movie theater to see what flavor it is. <laughs> I know I did that because I actually did get Juji Fruits a lot as a kid. Yeah. All but right. It, so I got this. I got the scene set. So go ahead with your scenario. Yeah. So what I was saying, like, you know, it's hard to do, but would you really see these as like the archetypes that they are? Because I don't think the archetypes are as clearly defined and stereotypical in this in this particular Friday movie as they, obviously as they would later on i mean yeah i mean no well they get more exaggerated as they go along because this is where like this is where those archetypes are coming from you know yeah but no i mean yeah these just this just seems like kind of a group of you know kids i mean you certainly have the the annoying kind of joker you know which is right. uh indian guy yeah um you know alice has played a little bit more like you know i you want to like the prude or whatever right yeah um, but I guess you can't be that pretty British considering she had like an affair with Steve Christie, like before this movie, but yeah, yeah. He was all fondling her face when she first got to camp. And yeah. But yeah, but I agree. I mean, later, later entries would definitely fall into more like, Oh, that's a super identifiable, you know, character type. Be- because I have to say, you know, obviously there's a sequences like football shirt guy wandered off by himself. You know, so you probably and then Bacon and his girlfriend are making love, which even then maybe you wouldn't think because there are at least two people together. I mean, definitely when the people kind of wander off or alone, you're pretty sure they're going to get off. But I don't think you know, and I guess maybe Annie, who seemed like the protagonist, kind of getting killed early, would throw you off. But like, I don't think you really can call it who's going to live and who's going to die. You know, say twenty minutes into this movie, you know, like like I would actually put the most expendable. As Steve Christie, but I think, but uh, well, Christie gets it later in the rain, I think, but um, yeah, but uh, yeah, he actually, I mean, granted, he was kind of absent from the action for a long time, but he actually lived for a long time for being kind of a molestery douche. I feel like in a modern movie, he got would have got killed way quicker. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the nicest benefit of like when you have this kind of these casts of unknowns, and then if you can like adequately set up, you know, every character to seem somewhat likable, um, and all each have a kind of a you know, identifiable character trait, then you you can get pretty far in the movie not knowing who's the actual final girl or 
in the case of the burning, I guess it's actually a final boy. But exactly, which, which I, I like the freshness of that as well. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, here, here, here we have uh, Bacon and his love scene, and there's actually quite a bit of thrusting here. I'm surprised mm-hmm. you know this really got through the MPA standards. But uh, but but even then, this is a very chaste love scene. Like you get just a little bit of side boob, and then you kind of get a close up of Bacon's ass getting squeezed by the girl. But yeah. I mean, it's, and that and that little glimpse of her one breast is the only nudity in this film. I mean, well, yeah. you, know, you said there's his butt, but uh, yeah, that's it. And like again, it, this is like that whole thing of pe- people sometimes think of this film and they're thinking about the rest of the franchise actually. Right. But this is this is certainly not like a TNA fest by any means. Now here we have the revelation that um, a football shirt guy uh, is dead on the top bunk. How did they really get in there and bang without seeing him up there? Well, there was a bag in front of him. Didn't you notice that? Was <laughs> <like> a, <laughs> that would have been a huge bag to run the entire length of that. That cot I mean, you're about to get laid. You're not. You're not yeah. that worried. That I, I. You know what? For all I know, Kevin Bacon knows him and is like, I'm not going to say anything until afterwards. Like, like that just kind of put the like. Did they see him and just think he was sleeping and like they're like, I'm going to. We're just going to bang here anyway. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which, by the way, I mean, obviously this is kind of short movie, 95 minutes, whatever. But uh, it moves along at a pretty brisk place because unlike a lot of movies that kind of take the time to set up all the characters and then start the killing. Like, you know, they kind of had Annie, you know, they set her up a little bit, have her get killed on the way to camp. So she didn't even make it to the camp. And, you know, after her murder, they were kind of getting in, you know, all the identities of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Now, one, one of these young guys... I can't remember if it was, I don't know if it was football shirt guy or the other guy that's playing uh, strip checkers or whatever with the other two girls. Strip Monopoly. Yeah, strip Monopoly. But one of them is Bing Crosby's son. Do you know offhand which one is? Uh, I think it's, I want to say it's this guy who's playing strip Monopoly. Okay. I'm going to hit the Wikipedia one last time. I know he was very much like he did not want people to know that because he was very self-conscious about I'm not trying to like live off my my you know famous father and there were people that accused them of casting him with that they're like they're oh they're right. trying to pull like a, a psycho or I, I should say a Halloween and oh yeah because like Jamie Lee Cur- which which, yeah. which if anybody's heard the stories of what it was like being Ben Crosby's son <laughs> let's see Harry Crosby was Bill Brown let's see. Uh, I am scanning the plot device, plot synopsis, I should say, because I, like I said, I don't know the names in this movie. I don't know who the hell Bill Brown is. He's either he well, is. football shirt was Ned, so okay, so yeah, so it, it is the guy that's playing strip monopoly yeah. with them. Okay, yeah, I was, that was, <laughs> now, that was this, more this... my own curiosity. I was thinking that all day long. So when you extrapolate this, this means Miss Voorhees, Mrs. Voorhees, killed football shirt. Mm-hmm. Got under the bed and was just under there the entire time that they were boning on the bed there. Yeah, like unless she had some ninja skills. Now this is, I, to me, this is kind of like the highlight of the film, the bacon kill, where it's like an arrowhead up through the bunk. Which that, by the way, that that's great aim, but um, to go to go through his throat, and I think it's that particular kill, I believe, was stolen from a Baba film, from what a lot of people say. Well, actually, the 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 one that's most notably stolen from a uh, Bay of Blood, or you that's know, right, Bay of Blood, Twitch the Death Nerve, whichever one you want to go with, um, 
is a kill that's in part two of Friday the Thirteenth. It's the it's when the two people are impaled together on the bed. Oh, okay, that's right. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. But yeah. but the, the, that effect, I mean, obviously, is great. I mean, you could tell the the color on the neck is like a little bit off. It's a little bit like yeah. silly putty, whatever. But I mean, it's it's great. Still, I'm, yeah. I mean, you can. I, I'll take that kind of like. Oh, the color's a little off to a CGI effect any day, obviously. Oh, yeah. and, and the one thing that was not off was I, I felt like the fake blood was the perfect color, you know. Cause I just like the, love the way it spurted up and like kind of goes pooled. into his mouth even. and yeah. yeah, it's great. And this is what I mean. Like here we have like a really – I mean obviously Bacon bought it. So, you know, you, you know pretty much his girlfriend's going to buy it in the, in the, you know, the shower house, shit house, whatever this is. But even this, they kind of take their time and they kind of build it up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. On the subtitles, 40 Yards to the Outhouse by Willie McCat. So they even give the credit on the subtitles of what she's seen. <laughs> no, no, no. She was reading graffiti that's on the door. Somebody wrote oh, 40 Yards to... Yeah, because if you hear it, it's 40 Yards to the Outhouse by Willie Make It. Well, oh, that's like, will he make it? Oh, that's even yeah. more interesting. I feel like these shots are really great looking through the window and all this. Like I mean this, I just talk about her and her underwear. But. Yeah, I mean this this film um and there was a very kind of similar shower house shit house scene in I think part 3 or something. Maybe part 2, but I, I think part 3 had one too. But um but yeah, I mean the cinematography, you know, I, I'm I'm a big sucker and you know, it really in the last few years I've started noticing cinematography. I mean, I've always loved cinematography. But, like, just the actual quality of what shit was shot on. You know, the last few years we've had the wonderful digital filmmaking revolution where almost every film looks the same unless they really color-code it or whatever in the computer. But uh, but I think this movie does a good job for how low-budget it was of actually having good atmospheric lighting. I mean, the film stock, you can tell, especially when you watch it on the blue, is, like, very grainy. But, I mean, that that's okay. Like, there's still a lot of detail and a lot of color uh, in this film, you know, it doesn't have that washed out look, you know, it has good contrast that a lot of films from the time didn't have, especially the lower budget ones. You're like, you said, you're just a couple years older than me, but it was very easy as a kid growing up watching these films to have crushes on a lot of the girls in these movies. And, uh, this is definitely one where, you know, just the, like this girl's so cute. And then you're, you know, you're a little kid watching these and she's just running around her underwear and this tight shirt with no bra. Yeah, like like I, I was thinking that too. Like if if this movie would have been late, made a few years later, when the like we said the archetypes were more established, I don't think she would have been the girl who had sex. I think she would have been like the mousy, like whatever mm-hmm. you know, nice friend girl. But uh, but you know, like we said before, it's very realistic. None of the girls are really sex. I mean, they're all attractive, but like none of them are really mm-hmm. sex bombs in this film. She has a problem here of like when she sees this axe, she has no flight or fl- or fight response. No, she just kind of goes into just standing there crying. <laughs> yeah, that 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 totally struck me. Her kind of like you said the reaction that totally struck me as like just a homage reaction to what you would see in older like fifties type films. Mm-hmm. I really I really like this girl, the, the last girl that's left. That's not Adrian King. I don't know her character name, but. But I, I think I think rewatching this, she was kind of the one I had the. I don't know. Annie was pretty good, but she was this one seemed really likable. I, I had the crush on her. Oh, oh, Mr. Crosby there, Crosby Junior. I would say he kind of reminds me of um, 
a cross between um, Steve Gutenberg and David Packer, who uh, starred in the miniseries of V. Wow, what a what a what a sterling combination! <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's kind of an obscure <laughs> '80s crosshatch there. And I love how like this girl, she doesn't instead of putting all her clothes back on, she just puts a raincoat on to run out. Well, but like I was thinking earlier when you talk about color, like the the girl who just died had that like pink shirt, but then she's wearing like the yellow rain slicker against it, mm-hmm. and it really pops. And then this like this green rain slicker really pops. So there is like some interesting use of color here. I mean, this don't get me wrong, this isn't superior or anything. No, but I mean, no, by no means. But 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 it's it's. I mean, we obviously don't have to defend this. This film, you know, has become a classic. I mean, even the diner, like, I think they particularly went to this place probably because of the, the way it looked and would look on yeah. camera. But, um, you know, this is a classic in its own right, but I think this is one of the ones where a lot of people, kind of like Texas Chainsaw, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, people probably saw it in low-quality ways for so many years, either on cable in the 80s or VHS, that they probably don't realize kind of how you know how good it looks you know cinematography wise and everything i mean there is definitely at least some there had to be some consideration of the use of color because a like i don't think any of the characters actually like dress in the same colors if you know what i mean so like that had to be intentional and then like we said like you know there's these little flashes of raincoats or whatever that bring other colors into it so I mean, I don't think that, you know, I'm not saying that here were super planned out, but I don't think it's, you know, completely coincidental. Mm-hmm. One thing one thing I want to delve into, Trev, uh, real quick, is we have uh, Steve Christie here um, hanging out at the diner. I wanted to bring this up, and I don't know if you were aware of this, because I wasn't aware of this today, until today. It was actually, remember how there used to be, like, little book adaptations of movies? Oh, yeah. Very popular. They're actually worth a lot of money on like eBay one or yeah. Or I mean, they still do those. I mean, I work in a bookstore and we still get novelizations and people still buy them. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of fun collectors things. Like I have the one for the movie Alien, and it's really good to read. In all honesty, like especially if you like the movie. But uh, they actually did not have one originally for this movie. And, uh, and you know, full disclosure, I'm reading this off of Wikipedia, but I just wanted to kind of bring this up. They didn't make the adaptation for for this you know, the book adaptation for this movie until 1987, seven years after the movie came out. Um, a guy named S- Simon Hawk did a novelization of Friday the 13th. And I think this is really interesting. It says, one of the few additions to the book was Miss uh, Mrs. Voorhees begging the Christie family to take her back uh, after the loss of her son, and they agreed. Another addition in the novel is more understanding Mrs. Worry's uh, actions. Uh, Hawk felt the character had attempted to move on when Jason died, but her psychosis got the best of her. When Steve Christie reopened the camp, uh, Mrs. Worry saw it as a chance that what happened to her son could happen again. Her murders were against the counselors because she saw them all as responsible for Jason's death. So I found it interesting that a the book came out so much later, and then that the you know instead of just kind of like whatever quick cash in, that the guy who wrote it actually kind of wanted to try to build more on uh, Mrs. Voorhees' character like that. Yeah, and I mean everything you just said, I guess you can kind of extrapolate from what we're given, anyways. But I mean, to, to be fair, like it sounds like the benefit of that novel is hindsight because I guess now is a good time to talk about this because there's just kind of lull here, but. 
One thing we have to admit is we can talk about how, you know, Cunningham actually, you know, came up with some good shots, came up with a cool idea, you know, directed this as well as could probably be expected. But in terms of this, the mystery element of this film, it really drops the ball Mm. because it's a complete cheat in that once the reveal comes, there are no clues given throughout the entire film. No. That allow you to have any idea that that, that it's this this person, and uh, they talk about that in the book as well. Where Betsy Palmer even called him on that on set, where she said like, you know, shouldn't we film some additional scenes with me to sprinkle through the film because right. this is just a complete cheat? And he was just like, ah, who cares? You know, nobody cares. Yeah. But but that's always been a frustrating element to me in that this is trying to kind of be in the spirit of those giallos and mystery films of the '60s and '70s, but it's not really playing by the rules and and not giving you what you need to. To, you know, play along and figure it out. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think maybe the only red herring you get is just Crazy Ralph because he keeps popping up, he's so creepy. But even then, he's mm-hmm. not even a red herring because you can clearly see throughout the film. You know, we we really only see the killer's arms and whatnot, but we see obviously it's not the clothes that Crazy Ralph was wearing, so he's not even really a red herring. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you really you don't know what's happening until Miss Voorhees shows up and then just gives you a long exposition dump and basically exactly. explains the whole movie to you. Yeah, and I mean I like that scene. I mean I like the way it oh, yeah. plays. I like her performance. But like we said, I mean you can't. That's one thing you know we've been hyping this movie, but you can't really give it credit for building a real credible mystery element when it comes to the identity of the killer for sure. Speak. Did you? No, oh, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. Did you ever uh, go to summer camp when you were a kid? Uh, not, not summer camp like this. I went to, I want to say sixth grade. My only camp experience was sixth grade. I went to like more like a weekend camp and, uh, kind of the purpose of it. It was during the school year. It wasn't, um, you know, I went to day camp a lot when I was really younger. Like we went to like a day camp where you did a lot of camp type activities, but then like your parents just picked you up, you know? And then, like I said, in sixth grade, I went to a weekend camp. It were kind of the point of it, the educational. Like, we stayed in cabins and everything. It was really cool. But kind of the educational point was it was like an underground railroad recreation that you would kind of simulate and go through. And then when I was, I want to say, 16, I went to, in the summer, I went to a week-long basketball camp. So it was actually at Hanover College. So I stayed in a college dorm, and, you know, we played basketball leagues and whatnot we had a tournament and whatnot but i never went to like the full-on whatever two-month whatever type camp how about you no i never i never did the camp experience uh it's like now i now i kind of regret that you know but i feel like all my camp you know knowledge and everything i came from watching camp movies growing up oh for sure (laughs) watching like the slashers and meatballs and stuff like that well, yeah, I grew up in like the kind of the greater Cincinnati, Ohio area, and uh, like I said, like I mean, I'm sure there probably was some somewhere, but you got to understand, I grew up in, in the age before the internet. Like, I don't really re- like there was like no local camp. Like, oh, there's camp so and so down there. Yeah, road. like I never really. I'm in the metro Detroit area, and I guess in my head, just because of where these films are, I've always taken in my – I'm sure there's summer camps in every state, but right. in my head, it's always like a New York, New Jersey, or uh, California kind of thing. Yeah. Like I was actually uh, watching – because I haven't seen this film in a long time when a podcast was talking about it. I was watching some summer camp nightmare, that film. Are you familiar with that film at all, Trev? I'm not. Yeah, well – 
it, it's uh, it's actually not a slasher movie, even though they market it. But it's it's actually about kids taking over a camp, and, and, and like they kind of lock all the counselors and people in charge. Like they lock them in like a, a brig cabin or whatever. So it's and, like that Simpsons episode. Yeah, pretty much. And, it, and then it be, kind of becomes a Lord of the Flies thing, like you know, yeah. you know, kids, whatever, you know, they, you know, starts getting more dangerous and dangerous, whatever. But like, I was watching the beginning of the movie, and like, the kids are like on school buses, and like, they talk about actually it being an eight-hour bus ride to get to the camp. And I'm thinking, holy shit! Like, <laughs> like, is this camp so damn famous that it has to like? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like everybody from around the state goes to it or whatnot. Now here we have, and this is what I mean about this film building good atmosphere. Was uh, you know I I think they you know the the shots uh, you know earlier in the movie with Bacon and his girlfriend talking about the storm and you know a couple of shots of the the river getting choppy and whatnot. Like they really build it like, and obviously I'm sure these are rain machines and whatnot, but like. I found, like, on screen they built, like, a good atmosphere of being in the rain and whatever and spooky. Like, a well, That's funny because, like, I can, if I if I kind of like a franchise, and this isn't even, like, this is pretty f- down on my list of this franchise, too. Like, this is not one of my favorites by any means. But when I when I like a franchise, I can really work myself into giving more credit than maybe is due. And I was just thinking about how, like, you know, the first time you see her kind of put this, like, nightgown on, I was actually thinking, like, hmm, that seems really, like, kind of probably not what a teenage girl out in the you know woods and cabin would actually wear yeah but the nice thing is then when she's out in the rain with the flashlight in that gown it really does give that whole moment like a real kind of old school gothic horror feel right just the the way it's shot and it kind of looks almost like hammerish you know not a, like boy i'm probably gonna get crap for that i'm not comparing this movie to a hammer movie but but, I just mean, in terms the, like the visual aspect of it for a brief moment at least. I mean, you got to admit though the the the, the dark, whole dark and stormy night motif, you know, and the fact that they're in these like old ass cabins and shit. Like, I I think it there was some intentional, you know, kind of making this a little bit of a throwback a homage to older films, you know. Well, and also because I feel like that those are probably the films that if if Cunningham had seen anything, it was probably those, you know, because I don't think Cunningham doesn't strike me as uh he was certainly not you know, the most, uh, versed in the horror genre by his own admission too. Yeah. And I mean, not only that, but it's just, you know, you look at his age, his generation, you know, and he wasn't really like, you look at his sensibility as a director and even a producer, like later on, he would get a little more exploit, exploity with stuff like the new kids of Spader or whatnot. But mm-hmm. at least this one, you know, this is kind of his first solo maiden voyage of, of a horror film. But I mean, you know, like when he produced last house on the left, Craven wanted to go to that more base animal instinct behavior and fighting for survival and like like now we see Cunningham's kind of aesthetic on full display here and it, it really is more of a suspenseful old school thing you know <clears throat> yeah I also think I, I ask if you'll agree with this I mean Craven Hooper and Romero these all seem like guys who you know like look most let's face it most of these guys start with horror because they know that's where a profit can be made right, right off the bat but you really got the sense that then Romero, Carpenter, Hooper, those guys kind of really latched onto horror and realized like, oh, no, I have something to say. I can talk about these things I want to say through horror. The one thing about Sean S. Cunningham and why he probably didn't become a master of horror in the same regard they did and didn't become a fixture is he's never struck me as that guy. He's a guy who who liked horror because it could make him money. Right. You know, it's very much like I these are profitable. And I don't think he just had the same love for it that those other guys developed as they went along with their careers. And that's not a knock on him. I'm just saying, like, that's why after this, 
he was more than happy to pass the reins of this kind of over to minor and and just kind of move on you know yeah and i mean the thing about it is is like you know i would i would you know this being distributed by paramount and whatever and, and the price they paid to acquire the film and all that like even though cunningham like like really was behind this and he deserves all the credit for what this is and being a, a marketable film you know having a major studio you know promote it the way they did which led to the success whatever like it's like i don't think he got rich off this movie at all no like at all and i i think it's even you know like i don't want to paint him as a sellout in terms of like he just stayed with horror because it was profitable because clearly some of the films he produced later like house and whatever you know they were more unconventional whatever but i think it's just one of those things it's just like well you know you can't get a little bit pregnant, so to speak. You know, it's kind of that type of thing. Like, once he went full-time into the film industry and was probably devoting his life to it, like, he had to do the stuff that would, that would A, attract the financing, get the green lights so that he could, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that they would get distributed and whatnot. And it's like, I mean, that's what it was, you know. And if, if you look at his kind of oeuvre, if you will, and let me do some, uh, some more wiki in here, um... If you look look at his his filmography, um, you know, I mean, like just breaking down the stuff that he did as director, he did some stuff in the early 70s, Art of Marriage, Together, that was not, you know, not horror whatsoever. 73 was his first, like, whatever, the case of uh, the Full Moon Murders, which I haven't seen this film, but it's more a suspense film. And then he did, you know, he he actually did a children's film, um like right before this I mean, a year or two before this uh manny's orphans that's where they met the kid who would end up playing jason in this so i mean yeah and then once you know friday 13th breaks and then he does strangers watching spring break which was actually a com- comedy uh and then you know new kids deep star six whatever like i just think it was just a, like we said like you know uh this is what he had to do to kind of keep things you know keep the lights on so to speak you know what I mean? yeah like, well yeah i think i mean i i think he very quickly had that sense of if i do like the first three of these or something i'm just going to be that guy yeah and it was i think it was very important to him to, to kind of run away from this as quickly as possible now later on i think we had that sense of it was quite apparent to me like when like craven didn't come back to the nightmare series i mean he was involved in three but yeah then he doesn't come back till new nightmare and, I, and it's clear it's because he actually has this kind of incredible idea that he wants to make right when Cunningham comes back, you know, we get Jason goes to hell and there's that whole, oh, the, the guy who created it all comes back to finish it, right? But it didn't really feel like that special to me because you really didn't feel like it was his franchise at all anymore. And really, he wasn't even – he was not the guy who built up the character of Jason, you know? But I, I really got the sense when he came back that it was kind of – I'm sure it was sticking in his craw a little bit to see guys like Craven and Carpenter have yeah. these incredible – reputations and he's like well hey what don't forget me i made the first friday 13th and it really felt like i don't want to say desperation but it just always felt weird to me when he came back and and tried to like become the shepherd of the franchise again i don't know how you feel about that but well i mean you know i think it's a little bit why craven kind of half jumped into three and then eventually jumped back in with fully with new nightmare is i think you know, with Craven, it was, it was like you said, like, it was, you know, Cunningham wasn't all about Jason, you know, like, he didn't really develop that or do that, like, like, Craven jumped back into Nightmare, because I think to try to correct what had been 
done with Freddy to try to repair some damage, so to speak, or at least bring it back to originally what it was supposed to be. And I think that's probably what Cunningham did was like the Friday franchise um, reached such a level of absurdity, you know what I mean? And he was probably seeing like thinking like it needed some level of course correction to get back on track. So, I mean, uh, I don't agree with that at all, actually, because I think what it really is that he saw people talking about Freddy versus Jason and he's like, man, there's a lot of money to be made there. <laughs> and that's why he wanted to come back, because you can say he comes back for course correction. But the first movie he makes when he comes back is Jason goes to hell, which is not a course correction at all. That's right. like a wild deviation of suddenly bringing in all these new supernatural elements or anything. But he was doing it to set up. I mean, everything he was doing, like, you know, Jason X was just killing time till he could get Freddy versus Jason made. I think the, I think he came back just because he really wanted to be involved in that because he knew how big it would be. Well, yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, I always took it that Jason... Which, Jason X, I do, I do enjoy. Here we mm-hmm. get Steve I, Christie. I love Jason X. Steve Christie walking into the edge of a knife or whatever it is. But uh, I, think, I think Jason X is, um, in a way... Because he knew things were going to get kind of turned over into bigger hands or whatever once Freddy vs. Jason was going to happen. I think Jason X was, I mean, maybe it was a bit of a placeholder to kind of be like, we know it's going to take a few years to get Freddy and Jason going. But I think also in a way it's like, let's cap off the quote-unquote original run of films, you know what I mean? Because if, like, if you look at it um, in between... Really, what happened? Like, if you look at the ending, okay, of like Jason takes Manhattan, right? And then you look at like what happened with uh, Jason goes to hell. Like, there's no way you can really like follow it up, follow it up, like just from a you know, like you look at the end of Friday two, and then it's like, oh yeah, we could easily make a Friday three, a Friday four, like whatever. Like, it's very easy to follow up. Like, I think Jason X was like that like let's send it off with a bang and kind of like end it end it because i mean you really had nowhere to go after manhattan and especially you know jason goes to hell i mean <clears throat> yeah well i mean you obviously the very last shot of jason goes to hell tells you what their intention is right and then the problem was that they that was supposed to be next but then that's when craven was like yeah but i want to do new nightmare and that kind right. of delayed things so um, yeah, I, I think Jason X was just. I mean, I, I'm not saying placeholder is any kind of like knock on it. No, I'm saying it was. It was. Uh, what can we do while we wait for this? You know, for the what we really want to do to come back around. Well, I, I think it was. You know, you know. Let Let's keep the fire a little bit warm. Um, in terms of like, I don't think you could have gone. You know, all them years in between, because didn't. Because New Nightmare actually came out pretty quick after Freddy's Dead, like within two to three years, right? If I'm remembering mm-hmm. correctly. And then Jason X didn't have anything, or Jason didn't have anything. Okay, f- the final Friday was 93, I'm looking at. And then Jason X, it got delayed, but it finally came out like 2001. But, I mean, you couldn't have gone almost 10 years. You couldn't have gone 10 years in between Freddy versus Jason and Jason, you know, uh, final Friday goes to hell. So, I mean... I think it's like we have to keep this character somewhat in the public eye if we want yeah, to. Yeah, and back. When, and like you said, like we have to. We know Freddy vs. Jason has to directly follow up. Jason goes to hell. So mm-hmm. if we're gonna make something, we gotta set it in the future because right. that way we're not dealing with any. <laughs> well, it's just funny because who cares really about continuity at that point? But yeah, I guess I mean, at least they were given that some thought, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, it was just like, it's kind of like uh, Alien versus Predator. Uh, Paul Anderson was like, well, like, I have to cheat and get get this movie happening out of the timeline so it won't fuck up the Alien franchise. Like, it was kind of that always, I've always wondered if there's like an alternate reality somewhere where, you know, after it takes Manhattan, Sean Cunningham comes back and instead of making Jason Goes to Hell, a film, you know, a, a very supernatural film about a character that really became the star after he left. I wonder if there's ever a thought of his to come back and actually try to bring a series back to uh, films more like this, you know, saying, well, let's let's really, you know, this series has gotten too big. Let's make it simplistic. Instead, it seems like he only wanted to kind of expand, you know, the, the bigger elements of it. I, I you know, with, without, you know, searching and finding the uh, the whatever figures and whatnot, I do know that, you know, after I believe part six i think starting with part seven and then manhattan i think the i think the the box office was steadily declining so i oh, think yeah, that's why paramount was fine getting rid of it yeah that's why they finally washed their hands of it but i mean i think i think they're probably the thinking of it was was like you know the reason jason goes to hell was so such a radical departure and then even jason x was i think i think there was the idea that you know just putting kids in cabins at a camp had run its course but I think probably, you know, like you, something kind of has to go away before you can miss it. And I think maybe if just they just would have waited, you know, you know, because because it, it was what seven years, eight years, whatever, in between Final Friday goes to hell and um, Jason X. I think if they just would have waited, they could have took a shot at just doing another camp film. Yeah, because you got to think. Well, about- for everyone. You gotta think Go by ahead. that time everybody had grown up and become more nostalgic. Like everybody yeah. who had saw it on video, it was too young to see it in the theaters. Everybody who saw it on video, you know, that younger crowd that was into the films previously, now they would have been old enough to go see it in the theater, you know. So for everyone watching the film along with us and listening to us and just wondering why we just talked about that for ten minutes, yeah. This is what we call the lull point of the movie, obviously. <laughs> well, we really haven't been that screen specific. And I mean it yeah. and you know, I'm kinda glad in a way we didn't because you know, like you can't it it would be a little tedious just to do a play by play. Well this really I mean this the... is this is a there is a long stretch here that we're in right now where it's just kind of characters walking from room to room and yeah. looking around and maybe something bad's about to happen, but nothing does. And it's it's that for a long time. Like there's definitely great sequences in this film but one of the reasons this is one of my you know least favorite films in the series is just because you know they're still figuring this out and the the pacing's not perfect and you know some of this just feels like filler let's face it i mean it does but but i want to ask you this because i actually find this kind of law section interesting because i always take it to be intentional because they actually could have stretched out everybody getting killed off to where they're like you could have just done it by clockwork where somebody got killed off every 10 minutes of the film but they kind of ran through the majority of the people within like the middle part of the movie and then they have the third act be like um you know kind of like a one-on-one here with uh, adrian king and uh mrs i'm not denying it's intentional but intentional doesn't always mean correct Right, I mean, it, it does the, the you know the the whatever what's going on here the the screen action it does get very dry, but I mean, do you think maybe there was like the thought of like okay like we kind of hot shot it so to speak for the last forty five minutes, and now we kind of have to let everybody like catch a breather, 
I get the sense that like, you know, Cunningham and Victor Miller and those guys, especially around this time, right? You read a lot of, you know, stories like this where these were the filmmakers who were going to watch a lot of movies at places like 42nd Street and things. And mm-hmm. and they were seeing the kind of things audiences were responding to. And they probably knew like the kind of pace that these movies have where, you know, you you front load a lot of crazy stuff in the beginning. You let the audience go nuts and hoot and holler. And then maybe you just do let it calm down for a bit. So that you can like ramp up to a big climax, and I'm sure that's what they're going for. I, I, I mean, I do think it gets slow there, but I mean, heck, right here, like once we find the first body, it's yeah. you know now it's game. So, yeah, old uh, Crosby Jr. finally bid it there, and uh, which I believe that was off screen, or at least the majority of it, because he had like three arrows. I don't remember the arrow and the eye actually happening on the screen. But uh, I love this like this idea of like you know it's something that they I think they touch on in Behind the Mask, but. The uh, one of my favorite staples of slasher films, not in all of them, but uh, the character walking around finding all the bodies because it forces you to a picture of the off camera stuff we didn't see of the killer actually right. taking the time <laughs> to set up these tableaus. Yeah, which it's just like, I mean, obviously, this was not the intention or whatever when they made this movie, but it, it almost leads leads credence to thinking that. Like, okay, like, you know, part two, when we when we find out Jason is the killer now, like, obviously that's a total cheat because he was dead in part one. But it does lead, like, retroactively, and I like I said, I know they weren't thinking this, but you could almost picture that Jason was helping this because you almost would need a second person to make all that shit believable. You know what I mean? But, I mean, if he's there helping, then what is her motivation? You know what I mean? Right. Like, if, she, if he's not dead, then what is she upset about? I mean, I yeah, I mean, I agree with that, but I'm just saying, like, like that's why the decision to bring Jason in was so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I mean, that's like a, a series that actually does have that happen, though, as to where um, in, in the Saw films, I remember they got to a point where, like, well, wait, how could a you know a weak old cancer ridden patient be doing all this stuff? Right. And then eventually they had to reveal, like, oh, by the way, he has like four accomplices. So, I mean, I mean, if they would have been like whatever. Like, I don't know, like, say they would have somehow had a plan in in place. Like, let's say they just planned all this when they made part one. You, they could have worked it in where it's like, you know, he didn't drown to death, so to speak. And he drowned it enough and, you know, lost enough oxygen where he could actually be brain damaged. Mm-hmm. And then that could, like, kind of play into why he's such, like, a simple mountain man in part two and just has murder on the mind, so to speak. <laughs> But I mean, obviously, like I said, I mean, that was not the intention whatsoever. But I have to say, you know, and we'll talk about this for a little second here. Um, I I thought they did a good job in, in this film, in all honesty, of making the women, I mean, kind of everybody just like got slaughtered through, but they got slaughtered through equally. Like, I don't think the girls came off in this movie as more victims than the guys. Did you? No, no, I I mean, everyone's equally terrorized, but I mean, look, she's clearly the most capable one. I was just thinking, this is why I would like die in like 20 minutes if I was in this scenario, because when she came in this cabin, I would never think to like take a rope and throw it over a rafter and tie the door like that. You know, like yeah, she's she fortifies pretty... it really good. Yeah. Although it's funny, I always laugh at that moment because she fortifies the hell out of that door for like 45 seconds and leaves the window next to it completely unguarded and open. Yeah. So the person can even see in, so to speak. Mm hmm. But yeah, like, you know, she's pretty resourceful and good. Yeah, here we have the girl in the nightgown. And I thought that was a great callback, too, that, that the nightgown girl kind of got killed on the archery range. Where, mm-hmm. where you know, her, the kind of, like, whatever fake surprise was in the first act. 
And what I just said about the the window being open reminds me of there's a great scene in the original Night of the Living Dead, my favorite movie of all time. But, you know, let's I, I can point out <laughs> fun flaws. There's a great moment where after they board up all the doors and, and windows, Ben is talking to Barbara and he says, like, no, we got this place boarded up really well. Like, there's no way they can get in. And as he says that right behind number two windows with, like, no boards on them at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's, like, saying it in front of the window. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, she kind of loses her shit here now when she sees another body. But I don't know. I think she's a good, quote unquote, final girl, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I, I like this character. And I have to say, I mean... I, I mean, we'll go ahead and spill the beans. I mean, I'm sure we'll cover part two at some point. But uh, where do you fall in with her getting killed off right away at the beginning of part two? Because I actually think it's a huge mistake. Yeah, it bums me out. I guess you know the reason why, though, right? Uh, kind of. So the, the the intention really was, like, they, at, a, at a one point they really wanted Alice to kind of go on and be like a, you know, almost like a Sydney Scream kind of thing. Where they're like, if we do sequels, we can just have these keep being about Alice. But Adrian King actually got a stalker from this film. That's right. Um, yeah, that's what I thought. And she was not. And after after the stalker experience, she was not super keen on staying involved in the horror genre of this franchise. So yeah. she was willing to come back, but in a much more limited perspective. And so that's why they just kind of killed her off in the beginning. Which I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like I understand an actor or actress wanting to get killed off in a franchise just to be done with it, so to speak. But I mean, if you have a stalker situation, I like. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, it's very serious, and I know a lot of people, like even Daniel Harris went through it after mm-hmm. she did the Halloween 4 and 5 as a little girl, but I mean, I, I, you know, whether you do the sequel or just do the first scene of the sequel, whatever you do, like, I don't, you know, I think the situation is going to play out, unfortunately, however it's going to play out, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, like I, I wish she you know, in hindsight, could have, you know, but I understand, I mean, people don't, you know, you get in a bad situation like that, you don't know quite what to do or whatever, but. Yeah. It used to bother me more when I was younger, like, now that I just, I, as I grew, get older and, like, just more into movies as movies, I don't care, but I remember when you're young and actually feel more attachment to films and, like, you know, the characters, I remember always being bummed when, like, a character survives one movie just to be, oh, like, yeah. kind of instantly killed in the next one, you're like, man, that really feels like it puts a damper on the on the previous film, but I've kind of gotten over that now. It's like, eh, whatever. I mean, this is this, this is the story of this event, you know? Right. Yeah. And I always felt like it's, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it always seems like it's like a weird cost cutting move, even though a lot of times it's really not. It's just, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I think another series that, <coughs> that, um, made the mistake was Halloween four and five where, uh, uh, what's her name? Ellie Cornell, uh, dies pretty soon in five. And it's just like, to me, if if you're gonna kill off the previous character, like, like I think it, I think it hits the audience harder if you have them die in the middle of the movie, and more of a shock. Then I, I think one of the one of the best ones ever is Randy in Scream Two. Yeah, like exactly because like because he gets far enough into the movie where you're like, oh yeah, Randy is one of the main characters, and when it happens, that I mean, that's still one of the most surprising deaths ever in a horror film. I think I remember seeing that in a theater opening night. And I couldn't believe they, they did it, especially at that point in the movie. Well, I mean, me personally, I mean, I, I, I really like scream one and two. I really don't care for three just for, you know, whatever. And, uh, four is fine, but it was really the first two fi- films I'm a big fan of. And, uh, especially at that time, like Randy was really my favorite thing about the entire franchise in all honesty. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, like is you know even when you know me and my girlfriend we rewatched for not this past Halloween but the year before we watched the whole series, and um, 
I gotta say, uh, even now watching it, it's like it hits me hard. It, it like half pisses me off, but then I like super respect it. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. that took some ball. You know, it's, it's just not. Yeah, a and, it, and, and it's and it's something they were never willing to do again with that franchise. Like mm-hmm. in each, like you know, they could never kill Dewey or uh, Gale. You know, yeah. So oh, it got comical how much Dewey survived. Honestly. I mean, part four, like, I actually do like part three. Part four is the one I don't like. And I, I, I always thought, like, the only rationale for part four existing would have been to kill one of the main three or actually, you know, and I know this would be cheesy, but just go for it. Make Sydney the killer or something like that. You know, the fact that they weren't willing to do any of that meant, like, why would you even bother making that fourth one? Yeah, I mean, it definitely was a cash-in, and they're hoping to start a new franchise and whatever. I mean, I, my problem with Scream 3, in honesty, is like I just don't, don't really enjoy that particular retcon that they did with the story. You know what I mean? But yeah, I kind of like it, but I also look at 3 as, like, by that point, I view those movies... Like, 1 is a really good horror film, I Really think. good, yeah. By the time you get to 3, I, I actually look at it more as comedy, and I, I think that's... And I kind of it works that way for me. Yeah, part. I mean, part 3, and I'm not saying this is just a shit on the movie, but... Part three to me, it seems like they're really like having some fun and going for like literally like a live action Scooby Doo movie. In all mm-hmm. honesty, yeah. So I guess we should be talking about this because this is like actually th- this whole climax is great. I mean, I love Betsy it's Palmer great. in this, and, yeah. and the performance is so good. And I think like uh, I mean I remember I so I wrote a series of reviews for this whole franchise, which you can still find if you go to uh, my blog, which is ifitbleeds.net. And you can read my in detailed reviews of all of these. And uh, I remember writing that the moment where she starts talking to herself as Jason, I wrote that I thought it was legitimately chilling. And I had a lot of people oh, yeah. in the comments, that the original posting, make fun of me for that. Mm. But screw you guys. It is. I mean, for this oh, kind I of agree. film, you know. I agree. Be- be- because up until that point, like, I mean, obviously we know she's quote unquote crazy because she's willing to extract revenge on total strangers. But until that moment, like, that's when you find out she's batshit insane. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I have to say, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how old Betsy Palmer was when they filmed this. Probably either her late fifties or maybe early sixties. But it, like, you know, there's a bit of action before uh, you know Alice hitting her with the um, the fireplace poker. Like this woman, I mean, this whole climax. It's you know, for it being an older woman, um, it's done. Like she did her part well, and you know, I, like I don't know how much was stunt people or what, but I mean, she went for it. I mean, it, it, yeah. it plays really well. And again, like you and I grew up with Betsy Palmer to us just being Mrs. Voorhees, right. you know, and I, I really wish I could have had that experience of like only knowing her as this really wholesome actress yeah. and then seeing this film. And, and and I don't know. I don't even know if there's actresses nowadays that have that kind of they're oh, they're just a wholesome yeah. person image that you, could, that you could now do that with. Well, I think, unfortunately, a lot of actresses, you know, I don't know, like it just seems like being a part of being an actress now is having so much sex appeal. In order yeah. to promote your career, well, and, I, and it's also have, being willing to being willing to do everything, you right. know, in every kind of role. It's not like there's anyone who just sticks to that. You know, you, you have a lot of young girls start off in Disney stuff, and then you see they instantly all start to rebel right away. And once they hit like eighteen, you know, yeah. Once once Betty White came into Lake Placid and just you know was like the most foul mouth <laughs> yeah. thing ever. It swore. That was like the that was like the last you know last one of those, I guess. I mean, I, like once again, this is a great fight. So with both of the actresses, I mean. You know, Adrian King's getting thrown around. Betsy Palmer's getting thrown around. Betsy Palmer's doing a good job of convincingly throwing her around too. You know, what oh, I mean? if you if you read the again, if you read the making of this, they said like so. Betsy Palmer did not know how like movie fighting works, right? And she they you know she just they said when the scene where she slaps uh, 
Alice. Yeah. She just like full on slapped her and like uh, Adrian King fell down crying and was like, Sean, she actually slapped me. And they had to come up to her and be like, oh, Betsy, like when you slap someone in a movie, you actually don't hit them. We'll add in the sound effect later. And she's like, oh, okay. (laughs) But they said that Adrian King has said like when she throws me around, she was really grabbing me, really throwing me. You know, once they yelled cut, total sweetheart. We all loved her. But man, she was physical. Yeah, I mean, it just, I mean, even this part, the, the kind of extended whatever, I mean, the photography, the backlighting of the woods, I mean, this, you know, like we said, we keep saying this is a low-budget movie, but this wasn't, like, you can't tell me a lot of care didn't really go into this movie. I mean, obviously, things we talked about, like the continuity and whatnot, but, you know. You know, and, like, I don't know, like... Like, I don't think you could have, like, let's say, you know, Betsy Palmer's character, Mrs. Vori, survived this film. I don't think you could have built a franchise on her. But no. at the same time, like, it really, it really kind of, you know, it kind of pisses me off that so many people dismiss this movie as not having Jason in it. And I'm just like, okay, like, there's not a guy <laughs> in a fucking hockey mask or a tater sack yeah. or whatever. But, you, I mean, as any horror fan, I mean, you know, like, like you, you can't get into this killer and this climax and this whatever, you know. It's, well, it's crazy, like, especially what Jason becomes is pretty similar to what, you know, 80 to 90 percent of all other slasher films are. Yeah. This is this is damn unique in that there's not a lot of other slasher films that end with an elderly woman being the killer that's, you know, taking all these kids out. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, you know, as the kills are happening, you're just seeing an arm come up, a hand, whatever. You don't really have any clue who it is, what kind of body type, whatever. But if, the fact I always said, like, the fight scenes are done so well, and Betsy Palmer's so badass in them. I mean, it kind of, you know, obviously there's things, like, that aren't logical or aren't quote-unquote realistic. And not that you would want them to be, but, you know, like like hiding under a bed or doing this or doing that. But, I mean, I don't know, like... like it's like when when you explain to somebody, you know, or somebody, you know, finds out before they see the movie that the killer is actually an older woman, think, oh, that's bullshit, that's unreal. But the way they play it, man, I think they stick the landing totally. Mm-hmm. Now, do you know Betsy Palmer only did this film because her car had just broken down and she needed money to buy a new car? I didn't know about the car, but I did know there was just like some kind of financial situation where she only did it for the money. Mm-hmm. And I know, I, like one thing we should talk about because we already kind of got the um, the quick cut-ins of Jason drowning, and we see that he's he wasn't a normal boy. I guess he was some kind of you know he has some kind of deformed um, head or whatever. And I remember you know I remember Betsy always talking about like how uh, she was so shocked when when they're like oh here's Jason here's your son and like she was so shocked that he was like they I think they referred to the character Jason as a mongoloid which like that's not really what he is or what you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like when you when you look at it it's just more of a deformed person like it's not whatever but um well it, to tell you what approach she is though too like you said she just did this for money and but then once she was there they said she was great you know she yeah. they said she was one of those actors who would not you know as big she was obviously a big star to them but she didn't go back to her trailer and keep to her. Well, there are no trailers, but yeah. she didn't like keep to herself. To her you know, cabin. she would actually she would hang out with the, everybody afterwards. And and they also said that uh, and she said that for as little of a role as it is and, you know, for as cheap of a movie and she didn't really care about horror or anything. She still took the time to in her head create this whole backstory for Mrs. Voorhees where she has this whole thing in her head where she was this young girl who got pregnant. And then the guy. Yeah didn't want to deal with the baby and so left her and she ended up working all these odd jobs and finally got a job at the camp and 
thought it was like great. And now Jason could, you know, be on a camp and grow up there. And it's pretty, it's pretty crazy how elaborate of a backstory she created. And that just tells you like, that's what happens if you hire actual, you know, a good actor for even yeah. something like this. Oh yeah. I mean, exactly. And, and, and I've heard a little bit of that backstory that she came up with, you know, she heard discussion and reviews and whatnot. And like, I gotta say, like, I mean, to me, that's, you know, like, completely jives with what it should have been. I mean, obviously, it's never explained or whatever, but I mean, like, with what she came up with, you know, and building her character into a real, actual, three-dimensional person, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like I mean, to me, that is the story, you know what I mean? That's where I always thought, like, I, I like the remake quite a bit, actually, but I always thought the biggest missed opportunity I had was just getting rid of Mrs. Voorhees in like the first two minutes, you know? And I really thought yeah. they, I know it's, I know we know it's Jason now and everything, but to not capitalize on that a little more. Cause I even like, I like the actress they got for Mrs. Voorhees in the remake, which, uh, which uh, was, who was from Star Trek deep space nine. And I just thought they could have done so much more with that character. I mean, I, I like, I was actually thinking about that, you know, myself today. And I, it, it, it like, I would have totally been down for more of a situation where, and you could have had Jason be the huge, already hawking, whatever, but I would have totally gone down for, you know, a, a movie where um, where where they're both in it, and then she yeah. gets killed halfway or something, you know what I mean? Yep. It yeah. totally would have been down there. But, I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, it is what it is. Either you like the remake or you don't. Like, I don't hate the remake. It's just, it's just not really my cup of tea, you know, compared to the other ones. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think that was a financial move to just get her out of the way, her character. Mm-hmm. Now, here we come up with the great, shocking, you know, decapitation. And uh, you can see the toothpicks. And, whatnot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you look at the hands, you can yeah. see the hands are hairy because they're actually the hands of Tasso, which is yeah. uh, uh, Tom Savini's assistant. Yeah. He's actually doubling those, yeah. It's like, how long does it take to shave your knuckles? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I I can see why that was such you know that that's a classic moment for a reason. I mean, the fact that they even kind of slow mo it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't, you know. Now this is weird, right? Like she she decapitates her, and her first instinct is to get into this boat and yeah. just float off. I've never. It, it's just so weird to me. I don't well, know. Well, I have to say, I don't really, and I'm glad it's not the final final thing in the movie. But like, I never really cared for the Carrie rip off jump scare at the end. But I think I think that's the only reason why she did that. I mean, in all honesty, you know what I mean. Like if yeah. it was me, I would have jumped in Mrs. Worry's jeep and drove in the yeah. and got the hell. Well, out okay, of so here, like, so as I just said, if you go to ifitbleeds.net, I'm sorry for the shameless plug, but no, I, um, I, I will tweet out the links right before and right. Yeah, when this I mean, I, I had a lot of fun writing the, the reviews for these, and for each one, I did a body count. I, I wrote about what was the best death. Um, I do a boob count. You know, you have to do those things for the series. Oh, yeah. But but for each movie, I also did a section called Nitpick Patrol, where I just talked about the problems with the continuity and everything. And and the one thing is this. Obviously, it's a it's an admitted Carrie ripoff. You know, they had seen uh, I think it was uh, Savini who had seen Carrie and suggested yeah. doing this. You know, the final scene. Um, but man, does it create some headaches because, especially like you said, when you try to connect it to the next films, because here's the thing people forget is it's not just Jason jumping out of the water and attacking her. There's this cop who's standing on the shore, like yelling to her. Right. So, like two of them. You, there's another one back by the car. So that means they must have seen Jason jump out of the water, right? Right. And we forget that there's a little coda after this where she actually talks to the police and they say, like, no, we didn't see anything. And that means this is just a dream. In the context of this film, this is a dream she has. But here's the problem is why does she know what Jason looks like? She was never told he was deformed. So it really doesn't even make any sense for her to have a dream where she, you know, actually gets his appearance right. 
so I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those, it makes no sense when you really stop to put any kind of thought into it. But it was there because it worked in carry. That's all they cared about. And, and you know, in in if you were to you know say this, and this is the great Ari Lehman, uh, musician. He's he was actually very young when he did this. I think a teenager. Um, he has a band now called First Jason. But uh, it's like. It works and then it doesn't. Like you said, it doesn't totally work because of this Kodo. But also, too, I kind of like the suggestion that at this point Jason's ghost haunts the lake, so to speak. Uh And then that's totally not followed up with with his reintroduction in part two at all. Yeah. Like if if there would have been, I don't know, some kind of, you know, supernatural theme with part two explaining his resurrection, so to speak, I, I think it would have been kind of cooler. But I, as I said, this is a series I love, but it's a series that can also, it's, it's frustrating, frustrating because yeah. it, it oftentimes ignores its own continuity. And also there's multiple times in the series where it doesn't do what it so clearly should. And I mean, there's like two instances where as me as a fan, I really want them to forget about Jason and actually pull the trigger on making Tommy Jarvis the new bad guy. Oh yeah, that would and be great. and they're and they're never willing to do it, you know. No. And you know, like I, th- I think J- uh, <laughs> I think yeah, I Jason Jason's truck just went by my house, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it, and, and you know, it, I don't know. I, I guess the point of this is that she's kind of babbling on about this boy in the lake, and she's obviously like really had a psychotic break now and whatnot. And, you know, and that's kind of the implication and whatever. But I don't know. It It, it is odd. It, it doesn't add up. And as we know, they just did the last scene as a Carrie ripoff or whatever. But, um, you know, she says, then he's still there. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good performance, though, the way she's kind of going cuckoo yeah. at the end here. I mean, I do enjoy that. And I and I love the final shot where I mean obviously it's a fish, but as a kid when you see that little ripple underneath, mm-hmm. you know I always took that to be that was Jason underneath there. Yeah. No, and if this was the only one, it actually would be a clever ending because you'd just be like, oh, that was just some weird hallucination she had, but maybe there's something to it, you yeah. know. Not that I'm. I mean, obviously I'm glad they made a bajillion sequels, but you oh, know. I am too. I, I think I think maybe. I think maybe, I don't know, I I think in a weird way, if you really want to be a fan and you really want to look at it, and, you know, in a high regard and whatnot, you kind of almost have to think of the, the series as more urban legend that keeps getting retold than an actual chronological continuity-based film series, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think that's a really cool way to look at it, and I, and I actually think that's the, the way to approach um Wait, why is Stephen Miner's name spelled with a PH there? Is that right? Anyways. <laughs> I don't um, so. <laughs> anyway, I, I think that's the way to approach any kind of new version of it is is to look at it that way of saying now these are every time you do this story again, it's like the new version of Jason that kids are sitting around a campfire telling the tale. Right. And I mean, in all honesty, you know, in part two kind of goes along with that, too, because, you know, they, they kind of tell the, the the legend and then like you know, around the campfire, and then that guy jumps out with the fucking <laughs> Halloween mask on and all that shit. And, like, you know, I mean, if that was ever explored, and obviously this this franchise wasn't trying to go down that road, but if it was ever explored where maybe it really was just his ghost in the lake left, and every time somebody told the legend, like, the ghost kind of manifested itself into, like, a new 
form of Jason based on the <coughs> legend that everybody was believing. You know what I mean? I think that could have worked in a way, in all honesty. Could have worked, but then you risk getting into that like hatchet territory where they keep calling Victor Crowley a ghost, but there's like right. nothing ghost-like about him. Nothing ghost-like about him. <laughs> I mean, the ghost theory would explain, you know, the weirdness of like how Jason like barely walks and yet he like covers miles of ground you know what i mean (laughs) but i mean as we'll see when we get to two and three like people again we have to remember that jason is actually pretty normal on you know through the first four films so or two two through four i should say yeah two through four Um, i mean people again people i often forget that the the whole supernatural element doesn't start until part six which is actually pretty pretty bold and and daring when you get to it you know for to to change a a series that much but yeah i mean i'm not like a huge fan of like the sleaze shit the way a lot of people are with part five but i do like part five i do like the supernatural element which obviously later gets explained there's not a supernatural element but i i do like the point where like when we think it's really jason like i i like the fact that we think he's come back from the grave so to speak you know what i mean well, I like because, like, again, I said, like, I, I kind of like the in my head, if it was actually, you know, Tommy losing it and then becoming like, you know, the new Jason, I'd be way more on board. Oh, but, yeah, uh, I would, too. But, like, like, but, you know, not that I mean, Roy, the paramedic, you know, it's yeah, whatever. I mean, I don't even like I wouldn't want to like a fight club type situation, but, you know, I would like if five turned out to be like completely like at the end we see like completely the whole thing like was a whole hallucination in Tommy's mind and like at the end of part 5 he just kind of completely becomes Jason, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that would have been cool too. But that being said, then I wouldn't have got part 6, which is by far my favorite part in the my favorite installment in the whole franchise. Oh yeah, I, I love zombie Jason. Okay, okay, let's uh, you know, this is looking forward, but ju- just to round this out with an interesting bit of conversation. Who is your favorite Tommy Jarvis? We have Corey Feldman. Can't think of the actor's name from Part Five off the top of my John, head. John John Shepard. Okay, John Shepard. Who? It, 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 am I remembering this right? He actually wants nothing to do with horror movies anymore. Or doesn't want to talk about it or whatever. Yeah, I mean, he he will like he. I guess he's lightened up a little bit. He's a little bit more willing to talk about it now. But he was definitely you know he's definitely not uh, out and about in the horror con scene or anything like that. You know. Yeah. And then part six, we had Tom Matthews. Who's your favorite Tommy Jarvis? Uh, Tom Matthews. Uh, you know what? I, I really like Tom Matthews just in general. I do too. I just think he's got such a likable screen presence, and it's always bummed me out that he wasn't a bigger star, especially when you find out that he's like George Clooney's best friend. Exactly. You know, how did he I'm not... always wondering like, how he did not yeah. cash in on that a little bit more. But Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to say because obviously you always got to love the Feld dog, especially in his younger performances. And I even like, I even like, I really do like Tommy in part five. Like, this this like i really like probably my favorite scene in all of part five is when he's at the halfway house and he's like looking in the mirror and he sees jason like i, I don't know i just like that scene yeah. but but i mean yeah matthews kills it i mean i don't know yeah. like and obviously you know that you know i uh just because my dad was never really interested in them i didn't see any of the friday movies in the theater until part seven mm-hmm. which came out when i was like roughly about i think 10 years old because i think it came out like around 87 or whatever but uh but yeah like so, so like i didn't really have to deal with like the whatever and when i when i went to see part 7 i don't think i had even seen like I, like i remember seeing the original on hbo way back in the day but i don't even know if i saw like 4 and 5 but um i think i saw bits and pieces like certain kills but uh you know like do you think it was weird for people back then that like you do this trilogy 
based on this Jarvis character, and it's never the same fucking guy, like, at all. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I also wonder how many people, like, picked up on the fact that it's the same character, you know? Because yeah. it's, I, I don't know how much people are paying that much attention to it, like we do now, you know, where we, right. everything's about, like, it being a sequel and set up to be a sequel. Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, like, besides, like, um, besides, you know, obviously different actors, like, the actual portrayal i mean obviously feldman was going to be different because he's a young boy in in part four but like you know especially with part five and six because even in part six he still isn't he still in the mental home or some type of mental he's he's just he's broken out at the beginning yeah right right so i mean that that would it must have been really jarring for fans or whatnot you know what i mean and uh, I don't know where you fall on this, but so not only is Tom Matthews my favorite Tommy, but uh, Megan in that film, played by Jennifer Cook in part six, is my favorite uh, girl in the whole series. My favorite heroine. She is really great. Um, I just think she's the cutest. I think she's a really fun, like spunky personality. Um, I had a huge crush on her when I was a kid, and she's oh, always yeah. I mean she's always been my favorite. I um, I just think it's really unfortunate that she has to wear mom jeans in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, that? I mean, it's the time, you know, and like, yeah. Hey, Obama tried to bring him back. So <laughs> yeah, Obama tried to bring mom jeans. back. Mm-hmm. He was wearing mom jeans a lot out there. It's interesting. I didn't know. No, my actually favorite is actually, um, uh, part three, the girl in part three. And I can't remember. And I actually like couple of the girls in that movie. That's my favorite. She's, she's good. The girl in part three. So part three is not, I don't really like part three that much, but really? the, it's my favorite. Oh, really? My, yeah. yeah. So six is my favorite. Um, but part, no, I, here's what I'd say about part three is I don't really like it that much for a lot of reasons, but I, I will say, and I, I, th- I believe I say this in my review, the final fight and chase between her and Jason is one of the best climaxes in the whole series. It's just so well done. The whole like final oh, battle. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. I want to say, I believe Dana Kimmel is, was the main girl. I think you're right yeah and I really you like I really like the girl that plays like the fake uh, Hispanic girl like they keep mentioning that she's Hispanic and she she looks totally white I like that girl a lot in it too I was actually really she's like she's the one who gets I believe the spear and the, the yeah. eyeball from Jason but, uh, you know what else is good that never gives enough credit because people kind of overly hate this film I think is um is Jensen Daggett as Rennie and in, in Jason Takes Manhattan Oh, I think yeah. she's a really likable main no, character she, too. Yeah, she's she's really good. And um, I mean, obviously, she was somebody who was on the upside of her career and wasn't known or whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, you know, like not, I mean, I don't know. The cast of Part Six is pretty damn good. Um, but I think I think there's maybe you'll disagree with me, but I think there's more of like a studio feel, even though it wasn't really made by the studio. But there's I always thought there's more of a studio feel with with the uh, uh, Jason takes Manhattan, like especially with the casting and stuff. Like, there's more yeah. Hollywood. I mean, kind of with the cast of Part Six, they kind of got a little more Hollywood actorish looking. I would say. <coughs> yeah, well, they had Tony so, Goldwyn in Part Six. Yeah, exactly. He he gets killed. Uh, he, he tries the VW Bug, right? <laughs> yeah. Killed, yeah. No, but but I mean, obviously, we we could sit here and talk Jason all night, and there's yeah, no. There's, I, there's I look. No, I, there's no point to because we'll get to the movies when we get to them. I was gonna say uh, it's not, the one nice thing is most of this series is in the '80s, so yeah. I look for, I look forward to doing more of them because, uh, like I said, it is it's my favorite uh, franchise. I actually I believe every Paramount entry is in the '80s because I think Jason Takes Manhattan is '89, isn't it? So yeah, I'm pr- I'm pretty sure. So we could run through the whole Paramount thing eventually, and I say let's do it because uh, I would I would I would love to, especially like I I can't wait to get to number two, which is one I I do really love. Yeah, part two, I think, 
I don't know, part two, I think, really does a good job, again, like, the climax was really good of the first film, but I think part two does a good job of having a good climax that doesn't let you down, and I I really like the final girl in part two as well. Yeah, she's great. Amy Steele? Yeah, like, yeah, she's great. Like, I, I really feel like, part, I mean, I know you don't care so much for part three, but I feel like the first three in the series are kind of underrated, in all honesty, for their technical execution and whatnot. Like, especially with five you get more of the grindhouse feel because of the director and what whatnot but four five and six i feel like is the the part of the series that gets the most love and i feel like parts one through three deserve a a little more credit than they get you know i can run with you there i've always felt like to me the most underrated one is takes manhattan and geez i'm not even like a huge fan of it but i think it's like it's a lot better than people give it credit for and I've always thought the most overrated one is part seven, which I don't think is very good. And I think people just remember that last like 10 minutes and think that's the whole movie. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that part seven. Part seven has a real kind of low budget feel too, And, uh, you know, not that it's a bad thing to be low budget, but it, it has a real dead spot. Like the, like the part where, uh, what's the, what's the gentleman's name? Terry Kaiser played Bernie mm-hmm. from Weekend of Burns. When, it, when you get into that section where him and the mom are like kind of wandering around the woods, it's really kind of padding the movie out. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they're all good. I would sit down and watch all of them in all honesty. Yeah. I, I mean, probably my least favorite <laughs> in all honesty is Goes to Hell. Just because, I, I mean, like I don't really care so much with the plot twist or whatever. But even that one, I like, uh, what's his name, John LeMay from the TV series. Yeah. He was good in it. So. Oh, and Creighton, Creighton Duke, you know. Is, oh, Creighton Duke's great. great. <laughs> yeah. Creighton Duke's yeah. great, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, my least favorite is part five. But, geez, I mean, it's it's I don't like it for a lot of the reasons a lot of other fans don't like it. <laughs> but as you point out, there's like this level of sleaze to it that makes it a fun watch. Right. You know, so it's not like, even though it's my least favorite, I'll never turn down watching it. I mean, yeah, like, there's just the fact that it's so, I mean, as they all are, but, I mean, Part 5 really has a mid-80s feel to it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like we're, we're, I would say definitely the first two Friday films could could have easily felt like they were from the 70s in kind of their approach, and I think Part 3 is where it really starts to get 80s up, so to speak, but, uh, but, but yeah, Part 5 is just really 80s. Kind of yeah, well, I mean, it feels like a movie directed by a porn director because it was, it was you yeah. know. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like obviously you don't want to speak ill of the dead or whatnot, but um, I don't know, like, like I, I, Ooh, I'm not gonna, I won't speak ill of uh, of uh, Danny Steinman because uh, I love Savage Streets, <laughs> like with everybody, bathroom, loves so. Savage. but yeah, but I mean, it just, I don't know, it just, it, it put it this way, it it wasn't the aesthetic maybe and there is some good shit in there i don't want to totally denigrate because there, there are some good scenes and whatnot but it, it wasn't the aesthetic and it wasn't the whatever that i was personally looking for in the friday yeah. but but then then again I, i've never hated the film for the twist the way a lot of people have like it was good enough for me that the fucker looked like jason <laughs> that was good enough for me like you you could have kept that kind of going for a few movies later and then revealed it and i wouldn't mind but but yeah, so thank you everybody so much. Obviously, Trev, thank you, and I look yep. forward to going down the kind of Friday Thirteenth path more later down the line yeah. with you. But yeah, uh, now that that's the only thing we're gonna do. No, but. yeah, but uh, but yeah, I think this is a good way to kick off the new year. Obviously, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to keep the train running here on the 1980s movie graveyard. Um, you can always check out our website, 1980smoviegraveyard.com. It's really a blog spot, but we got the domain, so you can just type in 1980smoviegraveyard.com. You can follow us on Twitter. On the, on the website, especially lately, we've got a lot of articles. We've got sub 
blogs on there. Like, you can check out Goat's Movie World, my personal blog on there. Hear what I have to say about certain things, like uh, like the Rogue One trailer. I did a little review of that. Um, yeah, I should start throwing stuff on there. Yeah, jump jump on in. Uh, we we got Corey. He's our he's our newsman. He's he's keeping you up to date, not only with what's happening with the news production, but cool places where you can buy merchandise and where good sales are on movies and whatnot. Um, and definitely, if uh, we always got to throw this plug out there, if you're an X Men fan, uh, you might want to check out Days of Future Podcast, examining the X Men, which is your podcast, Trev. Yeah, it's uh, me and my buddy Joe uh, talking about all, all things X-Men, the movies, the shows, the toys, the games. So that's bi-weekly. Definitely check us out. And uh, if you're looking for another monthly podcast, check out If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It with me and Bird. Exactly. Uh, another another part-time gravedigger. Exactly. He is another part-time gravedigger. Love If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It. That that was your first foray into podcasting. Here you got the trifecta of podcasting going on now with doing this show. You you were the podcast uh, ju- juggling uh, juggler the way I used to be a few years ago. Remember when I had nineteen shows on at the time? <laughs> I do, yeah, I do. It's uh, the glory days. The glory days, I know. We're both just still chasing that that Hardwick dream, you know. Oh, we are. We are. And the and the, and the more we kind of dilute and go into like other areas, it probably kills <laughs> the, the possibility. Yeah, I don't care. Of it. I don't. I mean, I don't. I'll gladly sell out and host one of those bullshit talk shows where I act like I love everything about the show and just talk about it afterwards. I'll oh, do I mean, that in a I, second. I, I will too. You know. In all honesty. Yeah. Give me like talk talking. You know, um, NCIS New Orleans or whatever. I'll oh, do it. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. You could really, really break down all the things that. Uh... <laughs> Or NCIS, we could, we, you could really break down all the shit that Harmon, you know, Mark Harmon and uh, yeah, Scott Bakula cool doing all the, yeah. Yeah, doing all their little shit. Chris O'Donnell, he's doing some great things. And, yeah, we, I, I would do it too, but I mean, you, you got to pay me to watch Chris O'Donnell <laughs> detective action there. But thank you, everybody. We'll be back real soon. Um, take care. Enjoy the new year. <laughs> Stick to your New Year's resolutions. Don't drop them already. And uh, we'll see you guys soon. See ya. Mini Wachoni. Yep.